Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is 9 a.m. in California on April the 2nd, 2020, and the world continues, at least appears to continue to be collapsing. Uh, No one's flying anymore. This morning, 6.6 million uh, first-time claimants in the U.S. in terms of unemployment. Globalism itself, perhaps, is collapsing. So who better to talk to this morning than the guy who, more than 15 years ago, predicted the collapse of globalism? John Ralston Saul is a very distinguished writer and... um, Uh, book advocate. He's the former uh, international president of Penn, the author of many bestsellers, including Voltaire's Bastards and The Collapse of Globalism, which he he wrote in 2004. He's based in Toronto. That's where he's uh, talking from today. Uh, John, how's it up there at the moment? Has globalism collapsed in Toronto? (laughs) Well, you can. It, it's fascinating to watch this sort of seamless movement of there are no borders to everything is borders. And I mean, the, the I thought the latest little detail, which was both horrible and funny, you know, at the same time, was uh, that it, it's clear that right up to the airplanes uh, taking off, people are out bidding and trying to get medical supplies away from other countries. I don't know if you've heard this or not, but it's uh, it's it's astonishing. You know, a country that's sort of theoretically paid, the, the plane is loaded, and and suddenly somebody appears on the tarmac offering double or whatever. Yeah, it's a kind of an extension. It's a, it's, a, it's an international version of the of the bidding that's going on amongst American states for ventilators. Yeah, and I think probably in, in many places. Yeah, so I so I mean, we are in a world which is not at, at this point globalist at all it's not even regionalist it's uh really down to in some cases states as in your country but unfortunately in canada the provinces and the federal government are cooperating completely which is astonishing because that really never happens um and but they're really hand in glove and uh the walls have gone up you know and and in a way the walls have to go up uh, they're going up, you know, between neighborhoods almost. In- between houses. I mean, everyone is suspicious of everyone else. The, you know, the the most overt kind of symbolism or metaphor of this is all of us going around in masks. We're not even willing to breathe other people's air. Yeah, the, the advice here is not to wear a mask, that it really is not the major problem. And they find that people touch their faces more if um, they're wearing a mask. But I mean, we're seeing a places where, um, for example, there's a largely Orthodox Jewish community in Montreal. And I can't remember the exact reasons. Um, they may have had a number of cases where they actually asked the city 
to um, put them as a community, a, a geographical community, in isolation because they did they wanted to be absolutely certain that nothing spread from their community to other communities. And so I think there are very interesting community-based things that um, are happening. So we've all become Hasidim. We've all <laughs> we've all retreated into our. Are, are, are narrowly defined and, 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 and carefully bordered communities. Well, you know, this has always been the contradiction of the last half century, which was that the globalist movement was to a, you know, it had some advantages and so on. Let's not, we don't need to talk about that. But it, it had underneath it this idea that democracy would be weakened because the nation states would have less power. And therefore, citizenship would be weakened because, after all, citizens are the guarantor of uh, the state. And so that if their role, if the state is weakened, their role is weakened and they become clients or, uh, um, you know, uh, self-interested or whatever the cliches have been. So, you know, what we're going through now opens up doors which could go very bad or very well, which is that in a funny kind of way, people in many countries, I don't know, not certainly not in all countries, are being asked to act as citizens. Nobody's saying, you as a client, will you, you know, uh, think about old people in your neighborhood or you as a self-interested uh, person, will you think of other people? They're talking about citizenship really for the first time in almost a half a century as a, as a general theme. So, I mean, how that can be solidified when we come out of this is one of the really, I think, the biggest questions. So, uh, John, I'm, I'm quoting from a, a very favorable Guardian review of your book in 2000, The Collapse of Globalism in 2004. Very favorable, except, of course, as with all favorable reviews, there's always a little bit of criticism. <laughs> and this is what the reviewer said. He said, Saul uh, may be broadly right about the last quarter century, i.e. the 25 years before 2004, but it feels as if he's stumbling around in the dark when it comes to the next 25 years. So 25 years plus 2004 is 2029, which seems a little science fictional. But in 2020, what did your book get that the collapse of globalism, what did it get right and wrong about the current crisis, the coronavirus crisis? Well, you know, my specialty is, I, I, you know, I've thought about this for over the years. I usually get it right, what's going to happen. It's much harder to know uh, the lengths of time, you know, when it's going to happen. Um, what, what is, uh, you know, really history is pretty clear that most economic theories, which are really ideologies, if they're taken on board in an absolutist way, last, you know, 30, 50 years. And if they have police behind them, like the Soviet Union, they can get up to 75 years. But usually the, the, the absolute belief in, social, in, in economic theories don't last all that long. It's kind of like cars, right? They, they can only go a certain amount of miles before they fall to, fall to pieces. Right, exactly. And of course, it doesn't mean that the next one is completely new, because there are only a certain number of things you could do with economics, you know. Um, so the, the next one is usually some sort of jumble of what's happened in the last 2,000 or 5,000 years. But, but, but interesting enough, 2020 is almost exactly 50 years since the beginning of 
globalism being taken seriously as a right. You use in your book is it 1970 or 71 as the beginning I, of globalism? I thought it was 73, but uh, oh, right, 73. The the Arab Israeli war, the, the the oil war, the oil crisis, which it wasn't really an oil crisis. It was a crisis of uh, overproduction and uh, uh, and uh, lack of growth, and it was sort of. But but there's the interesting thing that you bring up, which is the oil crisis provoked it, and that crisis brought you know the right or the neoconservatives or the, whatever you want to call them to power in essence, and brought this whole thing we've been living with for fifty years to power. And so in two thousand, you know, I I could see from ninety nine on that this crazy bus of globalism was. Pieces were falling off it. You, 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 from '95 on, you could see it all starting to fall apart. Um, and then there were a series of smaller crises. Obviously, the the terrorism crisis early in this century, and then 2008, 2000. But I started saying in '99, 2002, 2004. You know, we're at the end. We're really at the end of it, and therefore we're in a vacuum. And when you're in a vacuum. You have a limited period of time to come up with what you're going to do next. Because if you don't, then it will, things just start happening because it's a vacuum. You know, things mm. start imploding all over the place. And 2008 was, for me, the, the big implosion uh, because we did nothing. Because the people who had the power, you know, the, the economists, the, the governments, the, 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 the businesses with the biggest power, uh, the theorists, did nothing virtually, um, and so we got two thousand and eight. So, so let's let's turn the clock back to two thousand and eight. What should have happened, in your view, in two thousand and eight? Well, two thousand eight was a fantastic opportunity, really, to say that 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 the underlying idea of a lot of what had been happening was um, that we didn't need real growth anymore because we were all moving into service industries. Well, we know that really was, uh, we'd known for quite a while that that was a, a lot of that was about instability and worker instability. Um, and um, that things are just going to keep going faster and faster. Uh, and But in reality, two, 2008 uh, opened up the possibility of thinking differently. So the simplest example is, uh, I just take, we're, you're in the States, the decision to give the money to refloat the economy to the banks was a terrible mistake. They could have given less money <clears throat> to uh, the people. Um, just said, I mean, I'm, this this is not a specific, but you know, just you know, one morning the president comes out and says, as of today, all mortgages, uh, all mortgages, we're not going to waste a minute on working out who and who's who. All mortgages up to $300,000 are paid off by the federal government. And you just apply, and it's as of this minute, and it's done. And we're paying them off. And uh, so what would that have done? That would have completely stabilized the working class and the lower middle class. They would have had their houses. They would have been out of fear. And part of the middle class would have also benefited greatly from that. And being out of, largely out of debt, a lot of people would have started spending money again. And they would have relaunched the economy. Some banks would have gone down. There are way too many banks. This sort of idea that the cause of, of uh, a major financial crisis is the collapse of the banks is not true. That's not what causes it. It would have cleared out this jumbled banking system 
and um, and I think we would have had a relaunch of the economy. And but but the money coming. But how, how would the world? Uh, I I I understand that point, but leaving aside the current crisis, what would the world look like if if what you had said had happened in? say, in February 2020, before this crisis, would it have been more egalitarian? Would we have seen the same rise of economic and political populism? Would our culture be uh, more generous? Would would life be happier? What would be what, the, the, I mean, the major consequences? Well, I think that's a really smart way of, of putting it. I mean, it's very difficult to change the direction of society. So we all know now, I mean, there's nobody questioning that, you know, we've gone into a rich-poor divide in the last half century. I mean, I don't think that's really open for debate. All the numbers are out there. Mm, How, you know, how do you turn that around? That's so laid in with laws and regulations, national and international, all over the world. Um, You know, and so how do you turn that around? Well, you have to start turning it around by the way in which money is is uh, spread out, is shared, who benefits, and whatever. That, and I just give you a single example of what could have been done in 2008. If that had been done, I think other, uh, other countries who needed to might have followed. And then people would have been in a position to say, gosh, that worked. You know, uh, if it worked, if that worked. Uh, what else do we need to do along those lines? Because the biggest problem really of uh, in many ways the last half century is that there have been enormous breakthroughs in technology which actually should have meant uh, a sharing of the wealth a, a, a fairly broad sharing of the wealth and actually people not losing the stability of their jobs but having to work less right and and being able to devote the rest of their time for example to being active citizens that's just an example not necessarily just going to nightclubs or beaches, but actually to being uh, engaged citizens. Instead, we did the exact opposite, that we sort of raked the profits into a small group of people and destabilized a large group of people. So if in 2008 the reaction had been a a more um, citizen-based reaction, then who knows where we would have been by 2020, but we would have been in a better position than we are because one of our biggest problems today you know, technically is people are in lockdown in their houses. So you and I are probably just fine. But, you know, a large part of the population with two or three children or in tiny spaces um, jammed up. And, you know, the, and and this is a major problem. It's part of the problem of the rich poor. Maybe it's part, and that's another subject, of the obsession with uh, densifying cities, which, you know, has been a big message of the last decades and you know maybe we have to think what well, if we're going to densify them what does the architecture look like yeah. okay so john ralston saul i'm going to make you god for a day or certainly for a few minutes uh you're already a kind of god as the author of the collapse of globalism uh you're being and, very and, and all your other bestsellers but what are we going to do in this crisis you said we missed an opportunity in 2008 as well, uh, as 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 I can't remember who said it, but uh, it, it's often requoted. It wasn't Churchill that we shouldn't miss a good crisis. Give me some concrete ideas, initiatives, policies that we should be following now, so that we don't miss out again 
on the opportunity to rebuild a better world? Well, uh, I think the the almost the you know the big drama right now behind the scenes of getting through this is that the governments have stepped in in an enormous way, largely using quite old-fashioned techniques, right? So you have people lining up to say, you see social democracy works, but then behind the scenes, I hear it all the time, you must be hearing it, uh, the people who've had power are working out how they can stabilize the situation, which is to say, make sure we come out of it in the same place. And, you know, one of the biggest dangers is that that the outcome of all of this will be not change, and on top of that, a sort of rise in in racism. Who is going to be blamed for this? We can also see already see signs that the the other will be blamed. The people who's not like me, who aren't like me. So it, it, I think there has to be right now in, in enormous campaigns about um, uh, diversity and the other. Because we could. Do they ever work, John? No, I mean, those are such a turnoff, aren't they? Don't they just kind of confirm the conservative critic critique of liberalism? Well, if they're if they're done in that way, maybe we have to think of new ways of doing it. Maybe you know, it's all tied. The, all of this is really tied to whether we come out of this with a, a, a reinvigorated idea of citizenship as the source of legitimacy of society. You could say that's very, very vague. It actually isn't that vague because we've spent a half a century delegitimizing citizens. And, you know, so that you see citizens fundamentally as kids going in the street, which is completely different from uh, people having an enormous stake in how the society is run. Let me rephrase. Let me ask you another question because uh, I always love talking to you about this stuff. Um, is and you always seem to be suggesting this, but let me confront you directly. Are you suggesting that you can't be a citizen in a globalist system? Are you suggesting that citizenship and globalism are contradictory, that they can't coexist? No, not at all. It's you know, the, the, it, first of all, the, the, the real world is probably internationalism. Globalism was so tied to a specific economic. Yeah, and, and by globalism, to be fair, uh, I mean to, no, to, no, to I be fair to, to your position, I mean you you define it as neoliberalism. It's not international trade. It, well, basically, a a series of very specific things were pushed through in the name of something which was promised to be much larger. So the the answer is that you have to figure out how to work at the international level in a way which allows citizens to maintain, uh, to be the driving force. So it doesn't mean that the 19th, 19th century nation state has to say exactly the way it is. It may mean that you have to have, you know, more power at more levels, right? More decentralization of power at more levels. But you actually do have to, things have to function in a very practical way in places where citizens live. And the, the problem was the way globalization was done, it was, as if, you know, you living on your street or in your neighborhood or in your city or in your state or in your country would have less power because forces over which you had no control had taken over the market, et cetera, et cetera. 
technologies. But that's actually a completely artificial argument. It doesn't have to be organized that way. It can be easily organized in a way in which there are high levels of control and responsibility at all levels, and that allows you to open the borders. It allows you to open the borders in an, in an organized way, which allows you to collect taxes so that you can pay for health care. It allows you, you know, to uh, uh, maintain a certain kind of order. Even inside Europe, for example, the Schengen Agreement on travel, as soon as it came in, I thought, oh, I love this because I spent my life, you know, a lot of my life in Europe uh, going and, and you know, all that time you spend. But I thought it, it's not being done right. It isn't just about being free to travel. It's, you know, what are the structures that tie to the fact that 90, I can't remember if I said this to you before, but the reality is that whatever the number, 95, 97% of the people don't move around all the time. You know, most people mm. are stable. Yeah, you have told me that before. And, and the, you know, so a small group of people like you and me uh, and, you know, a lot of uh, professors and, and business people have convinced the world that the model is mm. that everybody's moving around all the time. We're, I would say there are fewer people moving around today than there were in the late 19th century under the European and American empires. Well, certainly today with the airport shut. So, so uh, John, finally, uh, you've, you've made your name um, as a, a counterintuitive writer, I think, and a iconoclastic writer who challenges traditional orthodoxies brilliantly. Um, we're all stuck at home. Apart from your books, what would be a book that people might read that would get them to rethink orthodoxies in the, in the age of the coronavirus? Gosh, a whole list goes, it, it, it goes through my mind. I'm terrible when I'm asked a question like this. Um, you know, it might be fun to go back and read uh, that 19th century book about um, the madness of crowds. What is it called? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's called The Madness yeah, of that's Crowds. The second half of the title, I think. Um, Human something in the madness of crowds. And it's about the tulip, uh, tulip, the tulip madness. Bubble. Just as a reminder of what we mustn't be going back to. There was a time when uh, upper middle class fathers gave this book to their sons and said, read this, <laughs> read this before I give you, before I die and you get my money. <laughs> but I mean, it would be interesting to go back and look at that. But I think it might be interesting to go back and read some Toynbee even. Um, and uh, Arnold Toynbee. Yeah. You know, and, but the, sorry, I'm not being very good here and it's not, um, it's not through lack of wanting to, but I always have to make lists in advance in order to uh, uh, actually, in some ways, you know, go back and read a lot of the, a lot of the, the absolutely essential novels, um, you know, read, uh, maybe read um, Life and Fate. Is that Life and Fate? Yeah. Grossman. Grossman's book, because I think that tells you everything about how societies fall apart, but also, how they can be pulled back together to some extent. I think it's one of the great books about what went wrong in, you know, in our memory, immediate memory time and what can be made to uh, go right. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. 
Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.